I want you to picture this. I want you to picture that you're sitting on Instagram or TikTok, Facebook, you know, whichever social media, YouTube, whatever. You're scrolling around and you see diet advice. And of course, it's like paleo this, vegan that, keto this, you know, don't eat these foods, eat these foods. Did you know that broccoli is a superfood? How do you make sense of all of this? It's a question that paralyzes a lot of people, a lot of people. And unless you've got the time and energy to invest in this question, you know, how are you just going to get to the bottom of it? And so that's when we start experiencing what people call the what the hell effect. Like, uh, I don't know. And, you know, all I worry about is just like paying my bills and living my life and being happy. So who cares? What the hell? Let me just eat the pizza. Let me do the thing, you know, and it, it basically turns around and all of it falls on deaf ears is another way to say it. And so in today's episode, I want to go through a food journey that's going to give you a couple of metrics and sharing my food journey as well and what I've learned along the way. And hopefully some of these ideas will benefit you. Okay. So starting off to say that I had a healthy diet is, you know, not true at all whatsoever. You know, healthy doesn't even come into it. When I left school, I think I was eating so much junk food. It was ridiculous, you know, tooth decay and fillings. Uh, I drank several cups of coffee daily with at least three to five sugars in each coffee. Um, you know, whatever, whatever sauces I could get my hands on, I used to douse my food in sauces. And then let's not even talk about the smoking. So, you know, I was absolutely not the picture of health without a doubt. And that's where I started my journey from. Um, you know, I was way, way underfed, way malnourished, you know, and those were all my own doings, really. Um, I just had no education around food and diet, just like anyone else my age. You know, who who tells you, who teaches you about these things? But over years, I dedicated myself to exploring and investigating. So I'll take you through a couple of these explorations very quickly. So one of the one of the things that I explored was actually one of the first things that I explored was actually the blood type diet, if you've heard of that. And I read this book and I was like, oh, blood type diet, that's that's fantastic. Yes, it makes so much sense. And I'm blood type A, so that means I should be sticking to fish. And yeah, that's great. And over time, I just found myself um, not feeling bad when I ate the foods that they were telling me would make me feel terrible. Or I was finding that people were eating foods that you know were supposed to make them feel terrible and give them all sorts of illnesses, and actually they were fine picture of health, you know, what was going on. So there was a lot of questions in my mind. And then when I started researching like, oh, where does the blood type diet come from? So <laughs> this is where we get into it. Yeah. So the blood type diet actually has a lack of evidence behind it as well. Like severe lack of evidence. It's basically the idea that your blood type is the most important factor in determining your diet and your diet suits a particular, sorry, your blood type suits a particular like evolutionary distinction. Like, oh, blood type O means that you produce excess stomach acid, which means that you can actually digest meats a lot easier than people with blood type A. So blood type O's usually get stomach cancer and things like that. Sweeping generalizations. And here we go. As of 2023, there is no scientific evidence to support the blood type diet hypothesis. There's no clinical evidence that improves health. And the person who came up with it, a naturopath, is the most prominent opponent of it. And that's it. And they make all these you know, assertions about the blood type diet, but there's literally like no data, none, no data. 
And blood type O is the most common blood type around the world in, in all populations around the world. There's no evidence that the O gene uh, represents, uh, sorry, that the, yeah, the blood type O gene represents an ancestral gene, you know, that, um, that has a particular like place in, uh, in the world where it stems from. So yeah, that's, that was that debunked very quickly. And so I was like, oh, I need to be doing a lot more research into my diets as well. And that was when I went to Indonesia. I started getting into that, the blood type diet. So it was really nice to eat all the fish, you know, that came fresh from the, the oceans near Indonesia. That was amazing. But then, you know, things fall apart. I, I just began craving a lot more red meats as well. So that, that in turn led to going into um, Argentina. And in Argentina, I was exposed to Mark Sisson and the plot, the primal blueprint and the primal blueprint. And I would say paleo eating as well is something that comes along, um, rears its head for most people. Um, I know that paleo is really big in the CrossFit community, but of course, you know, when you look at it, it's just a good guideline. And so the, the people who are super paleo, they, they eat very strictly, they're eating things like sweet potatoes, but sweet potatoes, especially for Caucasians, wouldn't have been paleo. Sweet potatoes come from South America. You know, you didn't have like Caucasians as in from the region of the Caucasus Mountains, which is in Europe. You know, you don't have that in the ancestral kind of eating habits. So, you know, the paleo kind of thing falls apart. The primal blueprint stuff is really great as well. Um, you know, eating stuff that's um, that our bodies are meant to eat. You know, that's great. But I'll get to that in a minute. I'll get to that in a minute. So paleo was okay, but people usually go a, a little bit overboard with everything. And so that's why, you know, like whichever diet you you go to, um, you know, you're going to be sucked into the the theory, going to be sucked into the um, the messaging around it, the identity around it. It's very dangerous for humans because we tend to let our guard down and group think. And even with something that we don't investigate ourselves, just if it sounds a little bit convincing, we're like, you know what? Yes, I'm in. And so, yeah, that's, you know, paleo got me for a while as well. And uh, yeah, so let's move on to the next one, which was keto. So I started doing a lot more research into like energy systems, um, you know, fasting and what happens when you fast. And, you know, this was quite interesting. So for a brief period of time, I decided that I was going to eat keto, which if you don't know, is low protein, super low carbohydrates, and very high in fats, very high in fats. And what you're trying to do is trying to get your body to switch over from burning sugars as fuel to burning fats as fuel, which is an entire process. So usually what happens when you change over and you start eating keto, your body isn't what's known as metabolically flexible. It's not able to switch over so super easily. And so what happened with me, like most people, is that you eat and you eat and you eat and your body's burning all its sugar stores and all its sugar stores and you just feel depleted for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden you go through something that's called the keto flu, which is literally your body trying to switch gears and change over fuel and burn fats instead. And oof, you you experience flu-like symptoms. And I mean, everything is flu-like, like everything is hurts, sore, you know, uh, fever, all of it. Um, and thankfully, it was a Saturday for me where I got that. And the next day I felt great. And then eating keto, I felt great. And I was uh, measuring my blood 
ketone levels at this point, as in I was pricking my finger like every three hours to see what my ketone levels were. And um, yeah, what I found is when I was eating, just eating like the wrong combinations of food would all of a sudden kick me back into burning sugars as fuel. Like it was incredibly difficult to stay on that, to monitor that. And it was only later on where I started doing my second round of like, let's say ketone, blood ketone, blood glucose level kind of experiments where I started to see what type of fuel we were burning um, at what time. And I realized that when you fast, within 16 hours of fasting, you're burning ketones. And so if I wanted to get into ketosis, which is the, the body's you know fat burning state, all I would do is I would um, you know have an early dinner and then you know not eat anything. And so when I woke up the next day, I'd already been like 14, maybe 15 hours without food and you know burn the rest of the sugars off throughout the day and then you know by midday I would have been in ketosis. And so I started doing these 75 hour fasts, 3 days of not eating any food to see what effect it had on me. Could I train? Could I just live my normal life? And actually, it worked really well. I was very surprised at that. Um, But I was noticing that I would hit a wall within that fasting. And that fasting wall usually came because I don't have that much body fat to burn. I really don't. And I was was getting up into like 5.2 or 5.3 millimoles per, per deciliter of ketones, which is pretty high. When you already, when you pass like 1.2, they consider you to be in. Uh, ketosis. And like when you pass like 1.6, you're in deep ketosis or something like that, or three is deep ketosis. I don't know. It's been a, a couple of years, but to get to five, whenever I show that to people, people are like, whoa, you got to five. How's that possible? I'm like, well, I fasted for three days. Of course, I'm going to be burning, you know, ketones as fuel, but that's not to say that I'm a doctor or anything like that, that I knew what that I was doing. All I did was not eat, you know, for three days and letting my body adapt to it over a period of time. I did um, several of these fasts and, you know, my body became very adapted to it. And actually quite interesting. One of the fasts, I literally started the fast by eating a giant chocolate cake and two days of fasting later, two days of fasting after eating this giant chocolate cake, my blood sugar levels were still so that I couldn't get into ketosis. I couldn't get into ketosis because of the meal that I'd eaten. And that that kind of sat with me for quite a while, quite a while. So yeah, and then after that, I started uh, thinking about going vegan because I was seeing all these vegan influencers online who were like shredded and they were looking healthy and all of that. And that's exactly what I did, you know? So I went vegan for a while for ethical considerations as well. Um, you know, I, ooh, I didn't want to, you know, uh, be the reason that an animal died. And, you know, if I can get, if I can live, um, you know, healthily and not have to consume meat. Like I know I'm not arguing that, um, you know, mo- there are some vegans who say like, you shouldn't eat meat, like meat is unhealthy or something like that. I'm, I wasn't that way. I was like, well, if I can survive without meat and still be healthy, then, you know, it might be worthwhile to give up. But of course, all of these things, all of these things, when you unpack them to the nth degree, there's always going to be a trade-off and there's always going to be some amount of bullshit behind it you know, some amount of horse crap behind it. And so when you're looking at like veganism, for example, you know, growing the amount of vegetables and things like that, it's 
Sure. You know, like I'm sure you've heard those arguments of like, oh, you have to plow fields, which would then produce this, this product or whatever. Yeah. You, you really have to increase your caloric intake, which means that, you know, you're consuming a ton, a ton more than you would usually. Um, you know, calorically dense foods usually mean that you don't need to eat as much. You know, if you try and get your same amount of calories per day from steak versus from lettuce, the amount of lettuce that you need to eat to make up the equivalent of one steak is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Um, so yeah, look, uh, at the end of the day, this is just my journey. I'm not saying I'm for or against any of these things. If they help, they help. But I think the biggest point is to see beyond the trends, the fads, you know, all of the the horse crap behind it and look at, okay, well, what actually counts? What actually matters? What are actually the things that are going to move the needle for me? And so this is where my two suggestions come in. And, you know, um, a lot of it comes down to, again, measurements, measurements and not believing what's out there. So what I mean by not believing what's out there is like, don't believe the claims. You know, these vegan influencers who are like, oh, yes, I'm fantastic. Just because one person is fantastic, it doesn't mean that everyone's fantastic. On the back of those vegan influencers are a truckload of vegan influencers who had to stop being vegan because their hair was falling out, because their gut was just destroyed. And that's actually happened to, to me. I was vegan for nine months to a year approximately, and it destroyed my gut. And I was eating strictly what... um what I was being recommended by, um, you know, the one book, Dr. Michael McGregor, he wrote a book called How Not to Die, like eat these foods in these quantities and things. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was eating all those quantities of foods and it blew out my guts and it actually triggered um, celiac disease within me. So I am uh, at increased likelihood, genetically speaking, of having celiac disease. Now, for those who don't know, celiac disease is basically um, inherited, it's autoimmune. And what it means is it causes a reaction in your body to a protein. Now, which protein in particular? Gluten. Yeah. So when everyone's like, oh, gluten-free, oh, you know, you don't need to eat gluten-free. Like gluten nowadays is a problem. And it particularly um, in the last hundred years, the amount that the wheat germ has changed uh, to the point where like, if you go to America, the wheat that's used here the gluten actually reacts more with most people. So even even people who are like, oh, I'm, I don't need to eat gluten-free. I can eat gluten all day long. They will still suffer a side effect of it, but whether it's noticeable or not yet, they will still reach a tipping point where they'll start to notice a lot more bloat, a lot more gas, a lot more farting, a lot more irritability you know, with it, within their bowels. That type of stuff, it's because there's a buildup of the damage um, you know, because the gluten triggers um, the immune system to produce antibodies against it, and the antibodies damage the lining of the small intestine, the mucosa of the small intestine. So, you know, the the quality of the gluten in North America is absolute crap, and it triggers a lot more reactions. That's why you get a lot more Americans who are talking about this. But in Europe, you know, there's in France, it's it's so interesting. In France, there's actually a movement to bring back a lot of like wild wheat, um, you know, species and variations on wheat that aren't actually um, as inbred as the wheat that you get here, as much as it's industrialized here. And, you know, people who get mild reactions to gluten, 
go over to France and eat eat the wheat-based products there and have no reaction. Why? Because the gluten is just different. There's, there's something different about it. Um, unfortunately for me, I don't think that that's going to matter much because of my celiac disease. It's not like I have a gluten intolerance. I have celiac disease. I can't eat gluten. It puts me in pain. I'm on the floor. I'm in the fetal position, and it feels like I've eaten glass. You know, so it's not it's not a great thing. So basically, going vegan did that to me, and I don't want to see anyone go through that. So it's always about seeing through the nonsense. I don't know if you've heard of the, for example, the celery juice cleanse. Um, well, if you look behind it, you know, there's a guy who claims to be the originator of the celery juice cleanse. His name is Anthony William, also known as the medical medium, a self-proclaimed medium who offers pseudoscientific medical and health advice based on alleged communication with a spirit. So yes, this is where you're getting your data from if you like the the celery juice fad, you know, the celery juice diet. So ultimately what it comes down to is this idea of like, well, who are you listening to? You know, and how much how much rigor is behind this? And you know, even if you can't answer that question, it just comes down to how normal or natural is this for the human machine to have grown in harmony with and that's where I come down to two things, okay? So quality and quantity. These are the two things that I recommend. Now let's talk about quality first. Whatever is your food, imagine that you can always do a plus one. There's no such thing as a good diet or a bad diet. There, there are diets, right? We eat what's available to us, but we can always improve on what we're eating. So if you're eating pizza, you know, improving on that is, I don't know, lowering the frequency of how often you eat pizza if you believe pizza to be harmful to you. Now, the question is, is what is harmful to us and what is actually, you know, natural for us to eat? You know, we get big things and we get small things. And the easiest thing to look at is the quality. So for example, if you're eating gluten, well, what's the quality of the gluten? What's the quality of the bread? What's the quality of the wheat? If you're going to be consuming oils, what's the quality of the oils? You might have seen that people are talking about seed oils versus other oils. You know, even olive oil here is allowed to be called olive oil, even though it contains like up to 40% vegetable oil. And if you, if you give the taste test to an Italian, I'm telling you now, they will be able to taste the difference because the olive oil traditionally that you make is going to have a significant flavor to it. And then beyond that, storing it as well, it needs to be in dark glass containers, which is stored away from light, just like wine is. Otherwise, the light is actually going to cause chemical reactions within the oil and, and change the flavors of the oil and change the, the components of the oil. It gets so interesting to dive into this. And so I was barely diving into this when I met my wife. And this is where I developed a lot of my, uh, my current methodology from. So when I met my wife, she was going through her second master's degree in functional medicine nutrition. So she is a registered dietitian in the US. That means that she's got a license to practice, things like that. You know, uh, It also means that she needs to have a high degree of knowledge on this. Now, she has two master's degrees as well. So I'm really leaning on a lot of her experience. But even then, there's some things that I disagree with her on. But we agree on the basics. And what the basics are is making sure that what would we have eaten if we had made this from scratch 200 years ago? 
So what's the quality of the source ingredient? For example, the vegetables. Okay, so we eat vegetables a lot. And, you know, it's vegetables, it's meats, and it's carbs. Okay, great. So the carbs can be from a vegetable source or whatever, but we'll get into that. But it's always asking the question of like, well, what vegetables are we eating? Can we eat better quality vegetables? What meats are we eating? Can we eat better quality meats? What carbohydrates are we eating? Can we get better quality carbohydrates? That's all. And then after that, it's then asking the question of how much of a process has this ingredient gone through to be consumed? So if we're eating um, meats, you know, the best the best kind of meats that we want are meats that have just been, you know, frozen and sent to us. And ultimately, you know, minimal processing is possible. So if we're talking about meats and we're comparing the quality of the meats versus the quality of the meats in McDonald's, you know, the level of processing but then the quality of the ingredients as well is very different from the types of meats that we consume. So, you know, it's apples to oranges. You can't compare the two, even though we'd like to generalize and silo these things and saying meat is meat. Well, no, it's not. What's the quality? So, you know, the best quality that you can get, you know, how can you improve and make a plus one decision? How can you just go from good to better to best? So this is your diet right now. How can you go from, from your diet right now to just a little bit better in terms of the quality that you choose to put in your body? That's it. And getting those habits dialed in means that there's no guilt. There's no buy-in in terms of, you know, you have to think this way or you have to be with a particular agenda or anything like that. It doesn't speak to anything of the sort. It's just all about what is the quality. That's it. What's the quality? And can, do we have the means to increase the quality? Nothing more. So whatever is your quality, asking yourself, okay, cool, can I improve my quality? So even if you're eating McDonald's five times a week, going to this idea of like, well, how can I just go four times a week and and choose a you know that fifth McDonald's meal, exchange that for something that's a little bit of a healthier option. How can I go, and this is what I did, how can I go from three sugars in my coffee to none? So, you know, it took a couple of weeks where I did it at two sugars and then one sugar and then eventually no sugars because when I did two sugars, I was like, ah, okay, this is now normal. Well, what's one better than this new normal? And so I went to one sugar and I drank that until I became sensitive to one sugar in my coffee. And I was like, huh, okay, now I understand. I'm sensitive to this amount of sugar in my coffee. And then I had no sugars. And now I'm sensitive to the taste of coffee and I actually prefer it now. And I see that sugar actually blocks a lot of the flavors of the, the actual coffee that I enjoy. So whenever I see people putting sugar or cream or milk in coffee, I'm very surprised because it usually completely changes the flavor of the coffee, you know, and you might as well just use like, let's say a coffee syrup in, in milk and you're going to get the same flavors, you know, in, in the beverage that you're drinking. Whereas just black coffee you know, maybe, maybe I'm a hardcore cowboy or something like that. You know, I do live in Texas now, so I guess, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's honestly, that's, that's where it goes to. It's just this idea of quality and what is good, better, and best. And looking at that, it's all about healthy and as natural as we can get it as, as healthy and as good a quality as we can get it. And that means the vegetables that you procure, um, you know, anything that you get, how is the quality uh, how do we measure the quality? And so asking those kind of questions. And so for for animals and whatever, if you're going to be eating that, it's really this question of like, how healthy are these animals? What is their feed? 
Um, you know, if we're buying from a restaurant, if we're ordering from a restaurant, it's going to be like, okay, cool. Are they selling organic things? You know, um, just to make sure that we're eliminating pesticides. That number one thing is, you know, Roundup. We want to eliminate that kind of pesticide, which is a thing here in North America. So making sure that we're ticking those kind of boxes is important to us. And then the last thing that I'll talk about is quantity. And so quantity comes around. And when we talk about quantity, it's very simple. Um, most people don't know how many calories they burn on a daily basis or how many calories they consume on a daily basis. So let's talk about earning and burning. Um, in order for you to, to gain weight, you need to be in a caloric surplus. Now, sometimes there can be things that, you know, hang in the balance. I know people who say, oh, a calorie is just a calorie. You know, your body can converts everything to sugars. And so it doesn't matter what is the quality of, of the sugar that you're taking in, or you could have that can of Coke. And usually the people that I find that do this are also justifying their habits of doing this as well. But converting foods into fuels is not just the only thing that your body does. Your body also then will be affected by everything else. For example, like tough foods will strengthen our jaw. Um, digestion starts in the mouth, really with breaking down the starches and amylase, um, you know, that's in our spit. We'll start to break down the starches. So there's a, a whole process that goes on. And if if you're eating something that's going to have a negative effect on one part of that process, you know, it's just a question of like, can we improve the quality of it? Sure, my body's going to convert it to sugar, absolutely. But then how much of a sugar dump is in the body? And this is where we get to calories in, calories out and being able to manage that. So if you're going for quickly metabolizing things, as in, um, let's say you eat something that's a simple sugar, it means it goes into your bloodstream a little bit faster. It means you're going to get that sugar spike very quickly. And that means as well, you're going to get a heavy insulin drop very quickly as well. And so what does that mean? Well, the more of that that happens, the more desensitized your cells become to insulin, the more insulin needs to be pumped into your body, and then we create a problem, right? Versus like, let's say a complex carbohydrate, it takes your body a lot longer to digest it. So it's it like gives off like these little, let's say, you know, puffs of uh, sugars. Um, for your bloodstream, you're going to have a lot less of a spike of sugar and therefore a lot less of a spike of insulin as well. But if we're talking about earning your calories, doing exercise. It's the idea that, yes, you can eat something as long as you're making space for it by consuming, um, you know, around the time of exercise as well, so that you're going to be using those um, free running glucose, you know, molecules that are running around in your body. Now, I want to say disclaimer, you know, I'm not a scientist with any of this type of stuff, but the simple idea is that if you are moving a lot, you can negate a lot of what's going on um, in terms of the negative effects of that sugar drop in your body. And the movement that you require is something that very few people track. And so this, this idea of calories in, calories out, to just be able to get a feeling of how much you need on an average day to manage your activity. And also like with regard to how much you're eating, how much in a particular moment should you be eating? Have you ever paid attention to serving sizes? Because I know as a matter of fact that I haven't. And what I always do now is I'll only dish myself out one serving before I even touch that food. So I'll open up a bag of chips, bag of crisps, you know, and I'll pour it out and I'll pour out only a serving. And then I'll put it away before I even start eating. And that's my bowl. 
and I'll have one serving of that. Because as soon as you start increasing the amount of the amount of servings that you have, you also start asking for problems by, um, you know, a cascade of events that'll happen in your guts. So when I talk about quantity as well, it's it's just an interesting experiment to go by and track your track your calories. You know, look at your serving sizes, track the calories that you're putting in your mouth, and you can use an app like MyFitnessPal, or the other one is Chronometer. Um, you know, I'm sure there's others out there, but then also, you know, having a wearable or even just carrying your phone with you when you go on walks and you move around or entering in exercise and something, you're going to be able to see how many calories you burn on a daily basis. You can also just input your height and weight and your approximate workout stuff into a calorie calculator online to see how many calories on a daily basis should be your maintenance level gaining or losing weight. And it's quite interesting to see this because I do feel that uh, I was in the dark and definitely all the people around me have been in the dark for years as well about how much do they really need in order to live. And I think that this is where we come back to the whole food journey and knowing your body, knowing just how much food you need, how much food you can consume on a regular basis compared to how much fuel you actually need for your exercise those will come back and quite surprise you. And I realize now I'm doing more exercise than ever, and I'm probably consuming fewer calories than I've ever consumed as well, just because I've been over-consuming for years. So in the last four months, I've dropped down, what's that, six kilograms, about 13 pounds, just by paying attention to what I'm eating. Yeah, I am trying to lose weight as well, um, you know, but I'm trying to lose weight steadily, slowly, maybe about half a pound week. And so some weeks I do great and other weeks I decide to take a break and just eat a few more calories to just maintain. And so my weight has fluctuated around 180 pounds. Um, you know, and I've decided, okay, cool, let's take it a few more pounds lighter. And it's actually become very interesting, very fun to do this type of thing because it's always so interesting. I'm always so curious to see how the body responds. So hopefully my little share helped you out a little bit more as well. I would highly advocate for you stepping away from any kind of agenda within diet and going back to simple questions like how many calories do I need? And how many calories are in this sitting, this one serving? And how many calories am I expending when I go and do something? Uh, I would highly recommend if you want to figure out how many calories are you expending to get uh, a tracker, some kind of wearable. You can do something as simple as you know, a watch that's going to track your calories. None of them are going to be 100% accurate, but they're going to give you a sense, an idea. But start with a calorie cal calculator online. Why not? So start with quantity. How much per day? How much are you burning? How much per serving? And then going to the quality and asking, what is the quality of the food that I'm eating? And how do I just increase that quality by just 1%? 1% at a time and make it a little bit normal. And in that way, you know, we become better for the communities around us. We become better role models for the youngsters around us as well. You know, we normalize health as well. Think about setting an example for others. Um, but more to the point, an example for yourself. You know, there's nothing, nothing better than taking pride in what you do and seeing it being like, look, look at what I'm eating. I feel great. And I think that that's the biggest impact that I can have on you is to stress this fact that when you eat cleaner, you will feel better. Okay. 
you will. So I'll wrap up with telling you the four things that I always tell people to avoid when it comes to the brain and feeling the brain fog and brain productivity, the four foods that I would highly avoid. Because no food is going to make you super smart. You need blood tests and all kinds of nutrient tests to tell you what you're deficient in or what you're you know, abundant in or whatever it is. Um, but there are four foods that I highly recommend that most people avoid. So what are they? So number one is seed oils. Why? Um, you know, the data show a lot of low-grade inflammation. Low-grade inflammation is going to create brain fog. That's number one. Okay, number two is going to be gluten. Gluten, I do recommend most people, especially if you're in North America, avoid gluten. And I understand if you're Italian or French, if you've got access to good quality wheat, uh, by all means, go for it. And I, I, I would check out some of the people in France that are actually doing um, – well, they, I think they call it like something like reverse farming, where they're trying to reverse engineer some of the crops that were grown over like 300 years ago. It's phenomenal. It's so interesting for me that we're going in this route. Um, so yes, so number one was seed oils. Number two is gluten. Number three is sugars. Yes, sugars. Um, for the simple point of like your brain actually just doesn't eat sugars. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of data out there to talk about this, but what I also find is that sugars usually make people super jittery and unable to focus. So perhaps that one's a little bit more anecdotal. You know, take it or leave it. But I recommend that people stay away from uh, sugars. And what I mean by that is highly processed sugars, high fructose corn syrup, uh, cane sugars, white sugars, things like that. You know, so look at how much you're putting in your body. And then the last thing that I tell people to avoid is alcohol. And that's an obvious one. You know, the impact that alcohol will have on you in the moment with blacking out, it's literally because it blocks the conversion of um, memory from the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. The formation of memory, that's why you black out. You're still going to behave like you normally would behave when you're drunk, but you just won't remember it. Why? Because the brain is literally not making a record of that anymore. Uh, but then you think about the next day, you know, if you're like hungover or dehydrated, what the impact that has on your brain as well. So those are the four foods that I highly recommend avoiding anyway, just, you know, out of, uh, yeah, out of love for your brain, I suppose. Anyway, that's all I've got for you today. I hope that helped you now get out of here, go and live your life. Enjoy yourself. I'll see you next week. Ciao for now.